0: read part of the Easter story and this is the part this Friday uh, when I get to the details of it I like to just kind of skim past it it's almost like I I recognize that they're necessary to read but I like to move through this to get to Sunday morning and hey the, the the tomb is empty and it's exciting but when we begin to look at Good Friday in light of all the scope of history we begin to realize that everything in the Bible from Genesis 3 when sin first entered the world all the way up through the Old Testament and all the way through those you know those four gospels point directly to this night in Jesus in the history of mankind point to the cross and then everything that comes after it, acts through revelation, is seen in light of that moment in history when Jesus willingly walked to the cross and took our sins upon himself. And so what we want to do tonight is we want to simply sit and consider what He endured and why he endured it. So it, tonight we're going to be in Scripture. Uh, so if you have a Bible, open it to Mark chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's definitely one in a seat front in front of you. I would encourage you guys to follow along. We're going to be looking at two major places in Scripture, and the first is Mark 15, I'd love for you to be able to follow along. In Mark chapter 15, and each of the four Gospels records Jesus' last day, Um, and in Mark 15, he begins in the morning. Jesus has already been arrested. He's already been, um, one of his 12 has betrayed him. And so we read in verse 1 of chapter 15 of the book of Mark, very early in the morning, the chief priests along with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. And They bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, Rome's representative. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews as I've been hearing them say, hearing them accuse you of? And Jesus replied, you have said so. And the chief priests began to accuse him of the many things. And so Pilate again asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But, G- but Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. Basically a show of of grace by the Roman government and there was a man called Barabbas who was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising and the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did and he said do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews asked Pilate knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Pilate asked. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. It's interesting that the Jews did not actually have the right to condemn somebody to die. That belonged to Rome alone. And so they needed permission to ultimately crucify Jesus. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Now the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. And then they put a purple robe on her. Purple was the color of royalty. They put this purple robe on him and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And these thorns aren't thorns like we think of on a rosebush. I mean, these were long, two, three inch thick thorns that would press into his scalp and cut him deeply. And they set it on his head and then they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit upon him. And falling on their knees, they mockingly paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes, and then they led him out to crucify him. There was a certain man from Cyrene named Simon, the father, the father of Alexander and Rufus, who was passing by on his way in from the country. And because Jesus probably had lost so much blood at this point, and the part of the cross he was carrying, he wasn't carrying the whole cross, he was carrying the crossbar which weighed about 100, 120 pounds. And because of Jesus' loss of blood, he kept stumbling. And so they put that crossbar on this guy, Simon, and made him carry it up to Golgotha, which is the place of the skull or skull mountain, where they ultimately were going to crucify him. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh. Myrrh would have deadened his pain. It's kind of like giving him uh, a, a Tylenol or something like that to help him in this process, but he refused it. And then they crucified him and they divided up his clothes and they cast lots. They rolled dice to see who would get each piece of his clothing. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him and they posted a written notice of the charge against him, which read king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels along with him, one on his right and one on his left and those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, come on down from the cross and save yourself. And in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him amongst themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those crucified with him heaped insults on him. We know that at least one of them did, while the other one ultimately came to have faith in him before this day was out. At noon, so three hours in, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, meaning that Jesus hung on that cross for six hours. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lenda sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling to Elijah. And one of the other gospels says that at this point, Jesus cried out, I thirst. And so someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now let's leave him alone and let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And then with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The gospel of John records what he said in that last cry to tell us, I it is finished. And he breathed his last breath. And then in verse 38, we read that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And this is the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of Israel. It was torn from top to bottom. And when a centurion, a Roman soldier who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. You know, I've read this so many times. I'm familiar with it so much that it kind of just flows over. It's just something I take for granted. I'm familiar with the fact that Jesus was beaten. I'm familiar with the fact that he was mocked. That the people who, who clamored for him to be their Messiah on Sunday are the same ones. And maybe it was different ones. But there are crowds now calling for him to be crucified because he was not what they expected their Messiah to look like. So they'd rather have him out of the way. I'm used to the terrible pain that Jesus went through. I mean, I don't even have any clue what that kind of pain is. But I'm familiar with the form of crucifixion. I'm also familiar with the cry of Jesus' lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This picture of The sin of all of our sins heaped upon Jesus and the holy God in heaven cannot look upon his son as he is weighted down with the sins that we, that I, have done. And so I I tend to breeze through this, looking forward to this Sunday morning. But one of the things that's really struck me over these last several months as we've been working through the Old Testament on our way to the New Testament is how many times passages in, in the Old Testament either foreshadow or outright foretell of what God would do in the New Testament. It almost seems like you can't fully understand the New Testament without having read the Old. And this, being such a central moment in history, has a lot of passages that speak directly about what God was going to do. Both foreshadowing and straight outright foretelling what God was going to do. Isaiah 53 is the most obvious one. It's probably the most famous one that we're familiar with. We read in Isaiah 53 that... Jesus was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before the shearers is silent, he didn't even open his mouth. And we saw him acting in that way when Pilate was questioning him and and the, the Jews are hurling accusations. He's like, Are you going to try to defend yourself? And Jesus remained silent, like a sheep before the shearers, did not open his mouth, did not try to talk his way out of it. And by his stripes, we were healed. But tonight what I want to do is I want to look at a passage, actually a psalm, that we may not be as familiar with. Interestingly enough, the psalm that we're going to look at tonight is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Quoted more times than any other psalm. And yet we're not nearly as familiar with it as we are the psalm that comes directly after it, Psalm 23. We all know that one. But tonight I want to look at Psalm 22. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles with me. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David written by King David some thousand years before Jesus was ultimately crucified. I want to I reiterate that point. This psalm was written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. Now, the reason I want to re- reiterate it is as we begin to read it, it's going to sound as if this person who wrote it was an eyewitness to Jesus' crucifixion and wrote it in response. But it predated him by a thousand years. Furthermore, I do want to to confess, this psalm was written by David and certainly it spoke about David's circumstances. But I also want to recognize that all scripture is God-breathed. The Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures that we hold in our hands. And although David was talking about his own experiences figuratively, using flowery language... What he meant figuratively, when we begin to read it in light of the cross, we will realize that it is almost literal to what Jesus experienced on the cross. Furthermore, I also want to point out that Jesus identified so much with this particular psalm as he was hanging on the cross, that although as his, his nail-pierced hands and his nail-pierced feet are being torn by those nails, and he's hanging there laboring for every single breath. Literally, you have to pull yourself up to get a breath when you're on the cross dying. Breath was so difficult to come by, and yet in the midst of this, some three hours in, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the first line of this psalm. And we go, well, so what? You know, he just, he felt the pressure of sins upon him and God turning his head. Maybe, and true, there was certainly that. But also, Jesus was quoting the first line because in this culture... In the Hebrew culture, they were a culture very much unlike ours, where we just look up anything that we read at some point. You know, we go, oh, I know there's somewhere I highlighted it. Let me go find the book. They had things memorized. A 14-year-old boy in the Jewish culture would have the entire Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, memorized by the time they were 14. This is a culture that has the scriptures written upon their hearts. And when Jesus cries out the first line of a psalm, the people would know it, not just know the first line, but know the entire psalm, would know the entire context of the psalm. And when he cried this out, he was pointing to it and saying, this is being fulfilled in me today, this psalm that was written about God's suffering servant. And so with that backstory, let's go ahead and read Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from, the, my, from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you by day, but you don't answer. By night, but you find no rest. Hmm. And then, as we're going to notice through this psalm, he vacillates between cries of dependence. God, I'm, cries of depression, I'm hurting, I'm in pain. And then declarations of dependence, but I trust in you. And so he goes on in verse three, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the Holy One, Israel praises in you. Our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them to you. They cried out and were saved and in you they trust and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by everyone, despised by the people, <clears throat> All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Don't be far from me for trouble is near and and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Bashan was simply an area that had very lush fields, and so they would grow very large cattle. So these strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open wide their mouths against me. And I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. You know, it's interesting that he, he claims that you, God, lay me in the dust of death because, you know, our most natural tendency would be to look at the cross and say, well, the Jews were the ones who clamored for him to be killed. They're responsible for his crucifixion. Or we might point at the Romans and say, well, the Jews couldn't have crucified him without Rome's permission. They're responsible. They're the ones who dreamed this terrible... Is it going out on me? Okay. They're the ones who dreamed up crucifixion as a way of killing somebody. So, obviously, it's Rome's fault. But when you think about it, nothing happened that was outside of God's will. It was God's choice to send His Son, God in human flesh, to take upon himself the sin that we had done. Even the night before, Jesus recognized that it was God who ultimately was the one who was causing this because when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out to God, God, if there's any way that we can do this, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, then please let that happen. However, not my will but yours be done. So Jesus recognized that it was God, his Father, who was ultimately laying him in the dust of death. Is this not turned on? I'm sorry, we're having some issues. Um, I know, I'll just keep bellowing. We we move on. See? Yeah. Verse 16, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Now that's the part that we go, "Oh, oh, okay, yeah. And we want to remember that when David wrote this a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, it was still hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever th- dreamed up. And he writes, Hello. They pierce my hands and my feet. All of my bones are on display. People, people stare and they gloat over me. They divide my clothes amongst them and they cast lot for my garments. And we read that and we go, okay, yeah, I, see, I can see some ways in which this matches the crucifixion story that we just read in Mark, right? We've got people surrounding him, mocking him. If you really are who you say you are, then save yourself. Come down off the cross. We see Jesus crying out, I'm thirsty. We see, you know, his hands and his feet being pierced. We go, okay, I can see that. But uh, this week, I, as I was preparing for today, I was reading... One doctor's description of what crucifixion would actually be like to experience it. This was a guy some 50 years ago who was a doctor and also a Christ follower. And he said, you know, I've I've read about the crucifixion and I recognize that the authors of the Gospels never intended to talk about the physiological effects of Jesus' crucifixion. They were simply declaring he was crucified because they knew that the people who were reading it understood what crucifixion looked like. They didn't need to go into detail. Well, we've never seen anybody, thankfully, crucified. So we don't understand what it looks like and what the body goes through. And so he took it upon himself to research what would happen physiologically to a person who's crucified. What was Jesus actually enduring? And I want to read just a couple of of paragraphs of what he wrote. This is written by Dr. Truman Davis. He writes, When they came to Golgotha, Jesus was thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire would feel for the depression at the front of the wrist. Now, we often imagine Jesus' nails going in through his palm like this. Because when the Renaissance painters painted pictures of Jesus' crucifixion, they read, They pierce my hands, and they interpreted this as the hand. But to the Hebrews, the entire wrist and hand area was considered the hand. So when he says, They pierce my hands, this is where they would put the nail where it would hold him up, if you put it through the palm, it's going to tear out. The body weight simply is going to tear that nail out and so they would put it through the wrist. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist and he drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats this action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The patabellum, or the crossbar is then lifted into place at the top of the crucifixion beam, along with Jesus being pinned to it. And the sign reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed in place. The left foot is now pressed backward against the right foot with both feet extended, toes down, and a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed, which brings to mind the statement, they pierce my hands and my feet. And Jesus is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in his wrist, excruciating pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is a searing agony as as the nail tears through nerves between the metatarsal bones of his feet. At this point, as the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles of his chest are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles, which help in the inhalation and exhalation of breath, are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. So Jesus fights to raise himself up in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Jesus experienced six hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, Intermittent partial asphyxiation where he can't even breathe. Searing pain where tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. And then another agony begins. A terrible crushing pain deep in the chest as his pericardium, the sac which surrounds his heart, slowly fills with fluids and begins to compress the heart. This brings to mind verse 14 of Psalm 22. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. It's now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissue. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small breaths of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain. And Jesus gasps, I thirst. Which brings to mind another verse from the prophetic Psalm 22. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. As we read that description, and we go back and we read Psalm 22, that description that David wrote, again, kind of rhetorically about his own experiences, it is literally what Jesus endured on the cross. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. and Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet, and all my bones are on display. People stare and they gloat over me, and they divide my clothes amongst them, and they cast lots for my garments. But then the whole attitude of this psalm switches from one of lament, one of pain, one of agony, to one of hope. We read in verse 19, But you, Lord, don't be far from me. You're my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of these dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen which God ultimately would do some three days later when he raised him from the death, triumphing over the cross, triumphing over death. Verse 24. No, verse 22. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Here he's speaking to the people of Israel, God's people. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise. In the great assembly before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows, which Jesus did on that day on the cross. He fulfilled his vows. He did God's will. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. And then he shifts from just speaking to the people of Israel now to speaking to the worldwide ramifications of the cross because this was not just a blessing for the people of Israel, but for everyone. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all of the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All all who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. And posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, (coughs) he has done it. And the last line of Psalm 22 sounds a whole lot like the last cry of Jesus' lips. It is finished. To tell us, That word, to tell us, is the kind of word that you would cry as you limp over the, the finish line in a marathon. <sighs> it's finished. But what was he talking about? What was finished? I don't think he was talking about himself. He wasn't saying, I'm finished, I give up. Rather, he was talking about the things that God had placed for him to do. But God, what you have entrusted to me, this purpose, it's finished, finally. So what was finished? Well, first off, the consequences of of sin that we read about all the way back there in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, sin entered into God's good creation, severing the relationship between Adam and Eve, no longer could they be face to face with their Lord and their God. Furthermore, death entered into the picture. And through Jesus' act of going to the cross, he nailed that death to the cross. But it doesn't stop there. What else was finished? The Jews used to look at the law as the ladder to righteousness. This is how we attain righteousness. This is how we can have relationship with our God. And Jesus, through his death on the cross, nailed the law to the cross, saying what the law was unable to do, I have done. I have made the law obsolete. Because it's not through observance of the law that you will be declared holy, but it is through my blood that you were declared righteous. Furthermore the sacrificial system was finished no longer would bulls uh, the blood of bulls and goats be required for people to be made ceremonially clean so they could enter into God's presence now Jesus became the one and only sacrifice needed as the, the author of Hebrews says by one sacrifice namely himself Jesus Christ made perfect forever those who are being made holy in other words, he justified us, even though we're still in the process of being set apart or sanctified. And then finally, the separation between man and their God was finished. We see this graphically through the fact that as soon as Jesus breathes his last breath, the veil, the curtain in the temple Separating the people from the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. But God was basically saying, It's done. You no longer need to be estranged from me. You no longer need to go through any intermediaries to come to me. You can come just as you are. Basically, tonight, what I hope that we're getting out of this is that although for Jesus' disciples, this cross came as a surprise particularly in light of the fact that on Sunday people are singing his praises, this must have come as a complete and utter shock. And yet for both God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, this wasn't a surprise. They knew this was coming. It was for this very reason that he came to take upon himself the penalty to us. Which is why, and you don't need to turn here, but in Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes about what Jesus accomplished that day on the cross. He writes this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in this uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. Far from being a tragedy, Jesus' death on the cross was actually God's greatest triumph. Because it was on that day that he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. It was on that day that he made sinners into saints. And it was on that day that prodigals were welcomed home. And that's what makes today, this Friday, truly good. Because of what Jesus did for us some 2,000 years ago. And the night before Jesus was crucified, he, he was sitting down with his disciples and he decided to give them a tangible reminder of what he was about to do. And they were eating a meal. And at one point he took a piece of bread and he, he broke off a piece And he said, this bread represents my body, which is given for you. And any time you eat this bread, remember what I've done for you. And then he took a cup. It was one of the cups of the Passover meal that they were sharing. And he said, this cup represents my blood, which is poured out for your sins whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you remember the sacrifice that I have made for you. And so tonight, as a family, we're going to take communion together. And what I want to invite you to do, as Pete and the the worship team come up, is just to sit there and spend a couple of moments thanking God for what he has done. And then, when you feel ready, I'm going to invite you to come up, and we have a couple of tables over here with the communion elements. I'm going to invite you to just tear off a piece of this bread. There's some unleavened loaves there. Just tear off a piece. And then take one of the cups of juice and go ahead and sit back down. In a couple of moments, we're going to take this together. All right? Let's go ahead and worship God together.